My wife Cindy and I have experienced two amazing weekends back to back. On February 10th and 11th, we were over at our son-in-law Kyle and daughter Naomi's house in Brandon, Minnesota. Our third daughter and her family were there also, so we were able to spend time that weekend with six of our eight grandchildren. And there were multiple reasons for us to be gathered together. Uh, as our oldest granddaughter and our youngest granddaughter both have February birthdays, so we try to pick one birthday in between uh, to be there. And uh, we'll, we'll hold on that slide for a little bit here. That's later on in the message. Uh, I'll tell you when to put it up. But uh, our oldest and our youngest granddaughter had their birthdays, and so it was a wonderful time of celebration. The oldest granddaughter is the one who sang here at our Christmas Eve celebration, and that's Emmeline Lorraine, and our youngest granddaughter is Donna Jean. Along with this, we were able to uh, have Valentine's with our, these grandchildren of ours. And if you know anything about grandparents, that's just a perfect excuse to spoil them and to give them treats. And so we enjoyed that. We also attended our daughter Naomi's church, Alexandria Covenant, where she's on staff as their worship director. And an additional highlight of the weekend was the father-daughter Valentine's event that was held at our granddaughter's elementary school. And it's sponsored by their FFA club uh, in the high school. And it was the first time that our second granddaughter, Lucy May, was able to go. And she wanted to attend with her dad alone because... Emmeline got to attend with her dad alone. So Naomi suggested to Emmy, well, how about if Grandpa took you? And of course, Grandpa was more than eager to go. In fact, I told the church leadership if I didn't get the weekend off, I was going to quit my job. <laughs> I was going. Okay, and uh, it was an amazing event, a proud moment for Grandpa. And when the Grand March occurred, they have, you know, butcher paper halfway down the gym, across the gym. They've got lights lined up. They sell tickets for $2 a piece for fans to come in, and they fill the gymnasium up. And uh, you walk down when your name is called, and each place there's a heart, you stop. And then, of course, there were a lot of dads that were kneeling at the second heart, which Grandpa looked at that and thought, oh, this is going to be a bad deal. And, uh, but I wasn't going to let my granddaughter down. I mean, this is a guy who's knelt and finished concrete and moved his knee boards, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times and stood up. So, but it's a little tougher at this age. But we do have a video of this. The crowd, when we were announced, we were about in the middle. There's about 100 young ladies that were there for that event, father-daughter event. And I was the first grandpa to be announced. So we've got a picture here you can see. And then there's going to be a short video clip. There's the, there's the couples there. There. And then the next one's a video.
much younger dad had an easier time, didn't he? Uh, well, last weekend, Cindy and I were in St. Louis, Missouri for the wedding of Charlie and Riley Scott. Charlie and his family are friends of ours who spend summers on, at their cabin on Lake Owen in Cable, Wisconsin. And Charlie's a graduate of the Air Force Academy and has a master's degree from the University of Alabama in cyberspace technologies. He's a cyberspace espionage specialist for the United States Air Force. In a few years, when his allotted service time is up, he's gonna try to catch on with a National Football League team as a punter and place kicker. And Charlie's the one who gave Cindy and I tickets three years ago to attend the national championship football game between Alabama and Ohio State because he was playing in it for Alabama and uh, they won the national championship. He was their punter on the team. Only 14,000 some people got to go to that event because it was a COVID year. And then after that we got to go to the hotel and be part of the game, post-game celebration with all of them. And Charlie is a devout Christian. Well, the rehearsal dinner for the wedding was at Bush Stadium at the home of the St. Louis Cardinals professional baseball team in one of their suites. And it was a high security event as the bride's father is a federal judge in St. Louis, appointed by George W. Bush when he was president. So it was a high security event. If your name wasn't on the list, you weren't getting in. You had to prove who you were. And they had uh, an attendant who would recognize every person who came in. When we're coming up to the front, Cindy says to me, are, are you sure we can go to this? You know, it, it says it's only for family and wedding party attendance. I said, no, they, they want us to be there. And uh, the food was fabulous. It was an amazing event. They put the slides of the wedding couple that they had on the jumbotron in the stadium. And every picture, television screen around the stadium and in the suite, they had six big televisions. It was all playing on there. And believe it or not, they stuck a microphone in my face too. So I even shared a little bit while we were there. We got a couple of pictures of this. You can see Cindy standing there at Bush Stadium. And then another picture where I just showed just the slideshow on one of the screens there uh, that was going on. Of course, we drove to St. Louis so we could experience snow. And... Uh and that was treacherous enough. Uh, but it went from there then. The wedding itself was at historic Trinity Lutheran Church in downtown St. Louis. And it's one of the biggest Missouri Synod Lutheran churches uh, in America. And St. Louis happens to be where the Missouri Synod uh, Lutheran Church is headquartered. Makes sense, right? Missouri. And uh, with their seminary, Concordia, uh, being located there. And the guest register for the wedding was a large print big Bible. And they asked every guest to write uh, a note about a passage, some passage you wanted them to read in there, turn to that page and write a little note about your blessing you wanted to give to that couple and read that uh, particular scripture. Uh, and uh, we have a slide of that church right there just to show you the historic downtown St. Louis Trinity Lutheran Church. Uh, the reception itself was the most high event that Cindy and I have ever attended. It was held at the Missouri Athletic Club uh, with a marble dance floor, exquisite chandeliers, superb decorations, uh, remarkable waitstaff, a 12-member band for entertainment. I dance for two hours and I don't even like to dance. 
That's how good they were. That's how good they were. And uh, there was an incredible meal. Uh, one man who was at our table was nearly 70 years of age said, that's the best meal I've ever eaten at a wedding ceremony. And we've got some pictures and a couple of short videos of this. You're going to notice too, uh, there's the wedding couple, Charlie and Riley, and, and the dad, Kim Scott. Uh, we were at the same table with them. Uh, this is Lance, a lifelong friend. There's uh, that couple that was there at that same table. And you're going to notice the cake cutting. You're going to be able to because he's part of the Air Force. with the gospel. The ceremony itself, the prayers, the toasts. J.K. Scott, who's the former punter of the Green Bay Packers and the present kicker of the L.A. Chargers, prayed a powerful prayer at the rehearsal dinner. And uh, the bride, Riley's sister, had an amazing prayer for the reception. The toasts were all powerful, gospel witnesses. J.K., the best man, got up and talked about his brothers, Charlie's faith. And then he thanked everyone for being there. Then he turned to our table. We're sitting there with... with uh, the parents of the groom with uh, two uncles and an aunt with the grandparents, his only remaining grandparents on the mom's side and then a lifelong best friend of Kim Scott, the father of the groom. And uh, when he got done thanking everybody for being there, J.K. Scott turned to his 90-year-old retired uh, minister grandfather and said to him, honored him, what you see here today and all these events this weekend are all part of your faithfulness to God. Your prayers over the years, the seeds of faith that you planted in this family are now, you're seeing it in full force. And in side conversations, Charlie and JK expressed over and over to Cindy and me our, their appreciation for us attending and being there and how much they loved us. And, uh, and we got to do the same with them to share how we appreciate them and how we love them. And it was then that I shared with J.K. Scott something that I'd actually shared with him in the past, that I believe that God is calling him into the ministry when his playing days in the NFL are over. And I emphasized to him that the largest group of pastors in the church in America are all around my age. And they're all hitting retirement age at the same time. And we're going to need young, enthusiastic, uh, godly 
pastors to come along. And I believe God's calling you to be one of those. We also had the same conversation, Cindy and I, separately with JK's wife, Sydney, who's a dear Christian, and she believes the same as Cindy and I do, that God is calling JK into the ministry. And I share this with you today because I know how important these conversations are to young people who are hearing the call to ministry. When I was young and discerning my call into the ministry, Sylvester Hirsch's mom, Evangeline Hirsch, was instrumental in my life. A guy named Greg Myro with Youth for Christ. A, a friend named Randy Hornstein, who was the president of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship chapter at the UWL campus. And Cindy, who I just had started dating, who had become my wife, they were all giving me the same message all at the same time, even though they were in different parts of the state, and many of them didn't even know each other. And a month ago, when Pastor James, during his candidating weekend, shared as well how one highly respected person in his life helped guide him into the pastorate where he is today, and now we are the beneficiaries of that wise counsel that were given to him many years ago. Today we're beginning a sermon series called A Seamless Pastoral Transition, where week one we are looking at the biblical wisdom for such a process. Today's text, Deuteronomy 31, 7 and 8, highlights the very transition taking place between Moses and Joshua. And here's the deal. Pastoral transitions are inevitable for every church. They are simply going to keep on happening until the return of Christ. And we have a slide of this very thing, uh, of that going on in our church. We're going to put it up now. We're going to keep it up for a few minutes. I don't know if you'll be able to see all of it or not on the screen. But in our church's history, do you find that slide in there? Oh, they can't find it. Sorry about that. It was supposed to be loaded. Anyway, it's in our history booklets, but in the 130 years of our church history, uh, the first 13, we did not have a pastor on staff. There were guest speakers, guest preachers, traveling evangelists, missionaries, student preachers, and lay leaders who filled the pulpit. Then in 1907... C.J. Carlson, the grandfather of our dearly loved John Detterling in our church right now, became the first full-time pastor. And he served until 1920 and then stepped down, staying in the community as a farmer and doing other odd jobs and remained in our church for many decades after that for the rest of his life. After a one-year stint by a student pastor, our second full-time pastor came in 1921, serving until 19. 26, Pastor N.J. Lind, who happened to be Sylvester Hirsch's grandfather, who happened to be Vince Hirsch's great-grandfather and Bert Hirsch's great-grandfather and their children's great-great-grandfather. And now we've got some other offspring on the way, not here yet, but going to be the great-great-great-grandfather of them. Well, in our 130 years, we've had pastors for 117 of them. And the first 64 years, we had 19 different pastors. In the last 53 years, moving now into 54 years, we've had two lead pastors. Uh, the last 46 years, we've had multiple pastors on staff. And pastoral transitions 
are inevitable. Now, please know that our denomination and our conference have been very concerned about our church transitioning from a long-term pastorate of 37 years. The director of congregational vitality for the Northwest Conference, who actually oversees rural and town and country churches, John Kramka, became directly involved with our church regarding this 13 months ago. A full 38 months before my anticipated retirement. And the first thing he did was to invite me attend, to attend a workshop on this very thing. He then sent our elder board some videos for us to watch. And then he recommended that we read the book, Seamless Pastoral Transition by Lee Critcher, which we all read. And then we came together with a plan based upon all of this uh, instruction and leadership and brought it to our church's membership last summer to approve this uh, of approach to this process and the eventually this led to the calling of Pastor James Walsh at last month's annual meeting to be the next lead pastor of Mission Covenant Church. Now many of our bigger churches in our denomination have done this very three thing including our three largest churches in the Northwest Conference. Uh, Crossroads Covenant Church in Woodbury, Minnesota, uh, Hope Covenant Church in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and Alexandria Covenant Church in Alexandria, Minnesota. To my knowledge, Mission Covenant Church is the only rural the only town and country church in uh, our denomination to go this route. And that's saying a lot because rural churches generally are late adapters to change, any kind of change compared to our sisters in suburban and urban churches. Mission Covenant Church, though, often bucks the trends. And we're just, this is just another example of that. Now, our denomination has been very concerned because we are classified as one of their healthy, missional, cutting-edge churches that they didn't want to lose any of the M's in. You know what I'm talking about, the M's? I like to refer to them as the M&M's. Mission, momentum, ministries, ministers, members, money, etc. On average, up to 4% of people leave or change churches when their pastors leave. We've experienced that in the two past, last pastors that have left. We've experienced that very thing. Many times their closest friends are the ones who leave the church. 4% leave. That's the statistic that's out there. Uh, if a church has an interim pastor and that interim goes more than six months, that number goes from 4% to 12%. And giving to churches in that same time period also drops 7% per year in those scenarios. And this doesn't even take into account all the additional costs of a search process. And now the search process has changed because you've got all these search engines and these other agencies that help in the search process and they cost a lot of money. It's a different way than it used to be for searching and advertising for your open positions. And then you have moving expenses and offering a salary and benefit package that is up to date and competitive as well as being able to demonstrate that to a prospective candidate that the church is on solid financial footing and has maintained its missional and ministry momentum in the absence of their pastor. The practice of seamless pastoral transitions has proved to mitigate many of the above mentioned setbacks. And such transitions, uh, we also uh, know, are not a new concept. 
because they are as old as the Bible itself. And more and more churches are now choosing to go this route. And by the way, our denomination is watching us close because they want to see what happens in a rural congregation when you try to do this new method like this. And simply stated, a seamless pastoral transition is a leadership transition in which a vacancy is avoided by a planned overlap and service of the outgoing pastor and the incoming pastor. In this process, the outgoing pastor is involved in the selection of the incoming pastor, which tends to increase the support and enthusiasm of the outgoing pastor for their successor. In this process, it is completely undesirable to have any gap in past, between pastors. Now, the common interim model of pastoral transitions is more of a modern phenomena in church history. It dates back to the 1970s in America, and it's based upon the assumption that churches need to experience healing before a new pastor can take over. The rule of thumb has always been one month for every year that the pastor leaving has served at the church. Well, have you done your math? That'd be 37 months of that old model of having an interim pastor before it would be safe for Mission Covenant to call their next lead pastor. Carolyn Weir and J. Russell Crabtree write, Today's prevailing stream of thinking regarding leadership transition in the church tends to be an illness-based model. A pastoral departure is treated like a terminal diagnosis. Just as no one plans for cancer, no one plans for a leadership, pastoral leadership transition either. And once the leader has moved, grief sets in, and this is an illness-based approach to leadership. Anthony B. Robin points out, interim ministry once and innovation has now become the standard operating uh, procedure for churches. A one-size-fits-all for every church. But the fact of the matter is, one size does not fit all for every church. He goes on to say that it's a flawed assumption that every church needs an interim period for grieving and healing or to find a new identity. Years ago, people would attend church for life. Sort of, this is my church. And it doesn't matter if we have a good pastor or a bad pastor or no pastor. This is and always will be my church. In those days, having an interim, which many times was an older pastor, a retired one, would work when churches were more predictable. However, in our day and age, people change churches at the drop of a hat for the least infraction or the least discrepancy, which thus changes the dynamics for pastoral searches. Please know that seamless does not always mean flawless. Okay? There can always be bumps along the road, no matter how thoughtful uh, and prayerful people are in this process. Simply, uh, seamless simply stands for health and momentum of the church not being negatively impacted. Christ-centered, mission-minded leadership transitions must be handled carefully with prayer and with great diligence. William Van Playson and Warren Bird write, few pastors are ready to admit that their time at their present church will end. For that 
day of succession may be, excuse me, will, will ever end. Planning for that day of succession, they say, may be the biggest task a pastor and church will ever face. It also may be the most important. Again, Deuteronomy 31, verse 7 and 8. Look at it closely. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Now, the first thing we need to observe in that text is that this transition was a planned one. Moses felt responsible as God's designated anointed leader of Israel to identify the incoming leader who would take his place. And yes, there were other good leaders in Israel, but who did Moses summon? He summoned Joshua. And the critical question every leader needs to wrestle with at this juncture is, am I responsible for the leadership that happens? Uh, for, am I responsible for what happens after my leadership role? Moses' answer to that question here in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 7 and 8, is shown to us by his actions. You see, Moses couldn't guarantee what was going to happen in Israel after his death. I can't guarantee what's going to happen at Mission Covenant Church after my years of service here. But Moses could make sure that they were left with a proven leader. And that's what I am aiming to do. And I want you to know by God's grace that I'm doing the very best I can to follow the advice given here to Moses. When we had our Mission 101 class in January, Pastor James, even before he was selected to be our next lead pastor, I had him in the class. And he's going to sit in on the first two Mission 101 classes. Then he's going to teach it and I'm going to sit in on the class. And then the fourth time it comes around in this years together, he's going to teach it and I'm going to be nowhere to be found. And, uh, and I asked him after our first class, I said, you know, what did you think? Anything you think we need to tweak or add? Or He said, no, no. That's wonderful. It's excellent. He said, there's a lot of institutional knowledge there that is going to be hard to pick up. And that's what I understand. And I'm trying to pass all of that along to him as I can. I've also been reiterating recently for our staff, for our church, uh, our elder board, for our church council, our behavioral covenant that we operate by as a church and how we enact that in our meetings and, and our council meetings and our elder board meetings and in our, in our, uh, in our uh, uh, membership meetings. And we've reiterated that. And we have all these new people in the church. We have all new, bunch of new members. We have new people in leadership positions in the church. Many who have not been here over the years when we work so hard to develop all those things. And I'm reminding them of people who've worked so hard. And key people like Don Jameson who was so instrumental in us moving to these processes that help us have these beautiful, missional, uh, uh, enjoyable meetings and gatherings together. And I tell them, this is what ne why it needs to be protected. This practice needs to be protected. And then I tell them, each one of them, this is the last time you're going to hear me tell, them, tell you this. Then I point to Pastor James. Now it's his responsibility to teach you how we function as a church. The second thing we need to notice here about this text is this leadership transition in Moses' time. 
is transparent. Do you see that? The nation of Israel was not kept in the dark about who was going to lead when Moses was gone. In fact, verse 7 tells us that this appointment of Joshua was done in the presence of who? All Israel. Some translations say, in the sight of of all Israel. Thus Joshua would not have to try and convince anyone after Moses stepped aside that he was God's chosen uh, person in private. It was done in private though, not in public. Uh, and Moses was the agent that made this choosing. He wouldn't have to do that. No, those who were the most impacted by this change were eyewitnesses to Moses' commissioning of Joshua as their next leader. Likewise, we have communicated over and over again to our church via emails, our church's newsletters, through text messages, through announcements, through sermons, our process and our progress in the pastoral transition. Most of this was done by our Elder Board Search committee chair, Dr. Joe Richards, early on. And then once Pastor James Walsh was affirmed unanimously to be the lead pastor of our church, I stood up at our annual meeting and presented the timeline of all of our pastoral transitions and the shifting that was going to take place, and in particular, the transition between myself and Pastor James in the next year. This was done both orally and in written form in the presence of the largest membership meeting ever held in our church's history. The third thing I want you to catch here in this passage was that this transition between Moses and Joshua was seamless. Joshua's leadership began when Moses' ended. And without a doubt, Moses believed that this type of leadership transition was God's will. And that it was in the best interest of God's people. Now I hope as we looked at, uh, I hope as we have looked at this today, that you realize that this transition wasn't just so that I Israel could have this new national or this new military leader. It was so they could have a spiritual leader in Israel, as Moses had been, a pastor, if you will. See, most Old Testament scholars refer to these two leaders as scribe kings, the ones tasked with being designated readers of the law. So what we're talking about today is the transition from Pastor Moses to Pastor Joshua. And in the weeks to come, we're going to be unpacking this transition even more as we look ahead to the transition from Pastor Darrell L. Nelson to Pastor James Walsh as lead pastor at Mission Covenant Church. In this process, let us take God's word to heart. Let us be strong and courageous. And to remember that the Lord himself will go before us and he will be with us. And that God will never forsake us nor leave us. And as we move forward, let us not be afraid. Let us not be discouraged. But let us move forward boldly in faith, in this seamless pastoral transition as a rural church. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to analyze throughout the scriptures the transitions that have gone on uh, in leadership. Moses to Joshua, Elijah to Elisha, Jesus to his disciples, Paul to Timothy, but also to Titus as well. Lord, we're taking these next number of months and, and really through the summer even in many respects 
and talking about these very things. And God, we recognize the challenge that's before us. It's breaking trends that have been practiced within churches for the last 50, 60 years. But God, as with every movement of your Holy Spirit, there's always a fresh wind that blows through the church. And there's new things that need to be discovered and learned and put into practice. And God, that is the phase that we find ourselves in. And we are continuing to ask for your Holy Spirit's leading. And we're continuing to ask that our hearts would be receptive and open and recognize the value in what's being done here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.